Welcome everybody, I'm so excited to be sharing the, with you guys part two of this series that we started called Go. Jesus, his, his final marching orders to us are to go. He commands us to go, to preach, to teach, to baptize, to go to all nations and to share with them the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week, uh, last week, uh, or the last session that we had, which was not last week, uh, we shared a little bit about this verse from Galatians chapter 3, where St. Paul says that all who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we kind of talked about how a, a unity takes place, though, despite being of all nations and despite being from all different parts of the world and all different cultures and all different uh, previous beliefs and so on. When we come into Christ, all that matters is Jesus. And if if you have your background and if you have your where you come from and what you think and how you operate, but you say all that matters to me is Jesus and I have all, all of what I am that's very different from you, but I say all that matters to me is Jesus, then we find an intersect. We find something that we have in common. And that's Jesus. And we become all one in Jesus. And we, we talked about being committed to unity, committed to being one. Now, in that unity, there's a lot of diversity. And that diversity expresses itself through culture. I want to share uh, a funny story with you. It so happens um, that uh, my in-laws are here visiting. Um, so I hope, uh, I hope uh, uh, Auntie Afe, if you don't mind that you're part of this story. Uh, on uh, December and De December 25th, 2011, I had just been engaged to marry. It was my first Christmas with my in-laws. So woke up on Christmas morning. They like to exchange gifts on the 25th. We, we wake up on Christmas morning, and uh, uh, Mary's middle sister, Irini, had got me this slim fit Hugo Boss shirt, which I certainly couldn't fit into now. Uh, but anyways. At the time, it looked like I could have fit into it. So I unwrapped it and I'm like, what a, what a lovely gift. Thank you, Irini. This is my first Christmas with them and so on. And, and Irini says, try it on, try it on. So being like a boy, wearing I was wearing like, you know, jogging pants and a t-shirt. I, uh, I got up and I... Uh, Being a boy wearing jogging pants and a t-shirt, I got up, I turned around, and I started taking my t-shirt off, to, you know, to try this shirt on. And so Mary, my wife, starts tugging on my jogging pant leg and says, go, 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 go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. And I turn around to her, to Mary, and I tell her, well, like, relax, I'm going to keep my pants on. And at this point, I turn around and I look at my mother-in-law, and she is every color of the rainbow. I thoroughly embarrassed her on Christmas morning. Now, I didn't know, contextually, that we call the things that, sh that you wear on top of your underwear that go from your waist down to your ankles. In North America, we call those pants. In Britain... Pants are the things that you wear under those. So I was implying that I was going to like, you know, strip naked in front of my entire family. And naturally, I embarrassed my mother-in-law. 
without any intention of turning Christmas morning into such an event. Everybody got a laugh, and we continued on. But the point is, is that culture affects everything. It affects our language, it affects our accent, our behavior, our religion. It affects everything that we do. In fact, what in the issue in this issue of pants that's called homonyms. There are words. The same word, spelled the same way, pronounced the same way, can mean different things in different contexts. So the context is really important. There's a bat that flies, and there's a bat that you hit a ball with. There's a ring you put on your finger, there's a band you put on your finger, and there's a, a band that plays songs. There's a ruler that you measure with, and there's a ruler who rules the land. And it's the same word with the same spelling, and this exists in all different languages. I know homonyms in French, I know homonyms in Arabic, and so on, right? And so this is just an example of how the context that bathes something is what gives meaning to that thing. The context which bathes us as we operate in our day-to-day, -day, as we work, as we study, as we worship God, is culture. And so naturally, if one person is from one culture and another person is from another culture, the way they worship God could, could be completely different. And one thing which is completely socially acceptable and admirable in one culture could be actually rude and, and uncalled for in another culture. When we go and do uh, mission work in rural parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, it is not uncommon it's normal that people bring their offering and put it at the altar, right? And so, so in the middle of the liturgy, I'm praying, and this person comes and brings a, a sack of corn, and another person brings something else, and then get this, somebody comes and brings a chicken, like a live chicken, and puts it in the altar, right? If you were to do that in a culture which is very stern and prim and proper, it would be considered an interruption of the prayer, it would be considered rude, you're bringing barnyard animals and throwing them in the altar, what are you trying to do here, are you trying to ridicule our, but in this culture they're bringing their offerings to, and putting them before God. So culture changes everything, right? And the question I have for you today is what is your culture? Culture is simply, like a simple definition, I found tons of complicated definitions, but a very simple definition is culture is basically a set of shared values that a group of people holds. So you got a group of people, what are their shared, what do they hold dear in common, right? If you look at this wheel, this kind of, you know, kind of unpacks it a little bit, you could ask yourself, you know, what do you hold dear in terms of community, in terms of knowledge and stories, in terms of language, in terms of traditions and rituals, in terms of techniques and skills, tools and objects, the arts, food and drink, and values? What is your culture? This is the handout that you have now, but I don't want you to use it right now. I'm going to tell you what I want you to use it for in a minute. Maybe 10 minutes. What is your culture. I remember a conversation I had with a friend of mine. You see, my parents are Egyptian, but they they, they immigrated to, to Canada in the, in the mid-60s. And so they've lived here in Canada for a very long time, long time before I was even born. 
And so essentially they're kind of very Canadian, but they're also like still very Egyptian. So this is the culture I was born into. And then I was talking with my friend who's half Syrian, half Canadian. Both of his parents are Syrian, but he's Canadian, you know, they lived there, the same story for a long time. So telling, I remember being in university in med school and telling him, his name is Ernest, one of my great friends, you know, at the time, this, you know, full of wisdom, this young man, true to his name, Ernest, was the most earnest person I have ever met in my life. And so Ernest, I, I, I said, Ernest, look, you know, it's so hard being like half Egyptian and half Canadian and not knowing, like, when am I supposed to be Egyptian? When am I supposed to be Canadian? And sometimes I just kind of feel like it would be better for us to just pick one culture and like throw the other one out and just do that. And if it like pisses a bunch of people off, that's their problem. And we're just going to do that, you know? And he paused for a second and said to me, but wouldn't that be so sad? Like every culture has like good things in it and not as good things in it. Wouldn't it be sad to take the strengths of one culture and just toss them out the window? Wouldn't it be better to take like the strengths of this one that complement the strengths of this one and end up with like some super culture, which is your own? Wise guy, huh? But the question was so stark for me at the time. What is my culture? So I remember having this conversation with my mom and asking her, so mom, what is your culture? Um, and my mom, probably was around the same time, says to me, well, I mean, how would we answer that question? I told her, I don't know, mom, like, what, what music do you listen to? She says, well, like, I listen to church stuff, okay. What food do you eat? She says, well, it depends, are we fasting or are we not fasting, right? And she says, what do you do with your free time? Well, you know, I do this at church, I, you know, I do this with my ladies group, I do this, you know? So... I asked my mom, so are you more Egyptian or are you more Canadian? And she said to me, well, I don't really know that either of any of the things that I mentioned are really normal in normal Egyptian culture or normal Canadian culture. I'm like, close oh, so what are you? Like, you know, penguin or something? Like, what, what are you, right? And she says to me, well, I don't know. I guess I'm just a Christian. St. Paul, when they were questioning him and they're trying to squeeze it out of him, says to them, we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. My citizenship is in heaven. So I'm not saying a cop-out like, oh, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm just the heaven and my culture is heaven. I'm saying that it, it adds another layer. So I'm kind of Egyptian, I'm kind of Canadian, I'm kind of whatever my ethnic heritage is, I'm kind of whatever my local culture is that I have to operate in every day, right? But then my faith and my life with Christ, that also informs what I do. Then this is getting complicated. Oh, right? Wouldn't it be easier then to just pack it up and go become a hermit in the mountain? Go find myself a cave and then just live there in a cave, right? Wouldn't that be easier? Jesus says no. No, that's not what I called you for. His final prayer on his knees, dripping sweat drops of blood, begging his father. What is he begging him for? He's begging of him that I pray that you should not take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. He doesn't want us to just exit the world. That would be an easy answer to all of this. I don't have to deal with anybody, right? 
I can be whatever I want. That's not Christianity. I'll do whatever I want. You know this whole like, like you do you, I'll do me? Like, like I say that all the time, right? You know, but it's not Christian. Like, Christianity is not just doing what I want. Christianity is doing what God wants, you know? But anyways, that's not what we're talking about. St. Paul was really, really relationally sensitive and emotionally intelligent. He was an incredibly cultured person, and he had it figured out. So he's waiting for his buddies in, in Athens. He's waiting, waiting for Timothy and Titus and Silas and so on in Athens. And he finds this altar to the unknown God. And so he says, he goes down to the Areopagus, this place where anybody who had a new idea, new philosophy they wanted to discuss, if they could make a case for it, they could discuss it. So he goes down, he makes a case, and he gets to the floor. And he preaches the most eloquent sermon in all of Scripture, short of the Sermon on the Mount, preached by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The most eloquent sermon. And he, you can tell from it that he's so, so sensitive to them. Now, they had heard about Christianity. They had heard about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and this new cult or thing that was forming, movement that was forming behind him, and it was kind of looked down upon by the Romans. But the Greeks, they didn't know what to make of it. But this whole business of rising from the dead, that was kind of something new. What was the result of that sermon? This is the final verse. I had, I had it all here, and I wanted to dissect it with you, but for the sake of time, we'll just cut to the chase. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. St. Paul says, in Corinthians he says, to the Jew I become a Jew, to the Greek I become a Greek, to those who are under the law I became as one under the law, to those who have no law I, become, I became as though I have no law, that by all means I may win some. Some mocked, but some said, we want to hear you again on this matter. So being culturally intelligent and sensitive doesn't mean that all of a sudden everybody is going to, you know, listen. Everybody's going to pay attention. No, even St. Paul, being extremely careful and choosing his words very carefully, some people mocked, but some people were open. There's, there are no immediate conversions. or, or and, 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 and There's just an, an openness that happens when people can see that one person is going out of themselves to try to accommodate what's normal towards another person. How did St. Paul present a culturally appropriate gospel? First of all, he starts off by complimenting them. Men of Athens, I see that in all things you are very religious. Second, he references something which was normal to them. There, I noticed as I was going through Athens this altar to the unknown God. I have come today to tell you who that God is. Is. Third, he doesn't quote scripture because they don't believe in the Old Testament. So why would he quote it to them? It wouldn't make sense. It's not credible. He uses a source which is credible to them. He quotes one of their poets. Fourth, he doesn't mention or use click words that would be offensive to them. 
last word on the street about this Jesus of Nazareth was he was a criminal who received capital punishment. So the Greeks weren't really open to hearing about Jesus. Now this is highly controversial, but you go read St. Paul's sermon in Acts 17. He doesn't mention the name of Jesus, not share the gospel without mentioning the name Jesus. I don't know, St. Paul. And he left them, some people, with some openness to hear him speak again. I'm not saying that we should hide Jesus or use this as an excuse. I'm just saying that we should be careful and willing to choose our words, to choose our ways, not to conceal the truth, reveal it in a way which is not necessarily offensive for the listener, if possible. St. Paul says, so, sorry, this is St. James. So, this, another issue that came up in the early church was whether people had to become Jews before they become Christians. And so, they, they convened a council, all the apostles got together, and they listened to the case of Paul and Barnabas, and they listened to the case of the other you know, uh, people, the Jew, older Jewish men who, who had a case to say and so on. And then St. James, the eldest amongst the apostles, stands up and he says, Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Look, if I could, if I could blow this up as a banner and wallpaper the church with it, if I could wear this as a t-shirt or tattoo it to my arm, if I could print it on the like inside of my glasses, I would. I was at a conference of priests and bishops where they were talking about new ways of doing things in an ancient church. How can we take, and we were all tasked with different topics. I had a topic about reaching out to unbelievers. Another priest had a topic of um, uh, how can we make the, the Coptic Orthodox Church more, more attractive to, uh, to North American culture? That priest, God bless him, dear friend of mine, stood up and he said, if you'll allow me, I can't answer this question. I would prefer to rephrase it. What do we need to stop doing that makes an already very beautiful Coptic Orthodox Church unattractive. So, you know, you are, you know, extremely handsome or extremely beautiful young man or young woman, respectively. And you choose to, like, not do your hair, not shave, not wear any makeup, not shower for six days, you know, etc., etc. But, but the thing itself in its essence is so beautiful. Why, why do we make it offensive? Look, the gospel message in the day, in our day and age today has become very offensive because people don't see the need for it. Let me explain. The gospel message is that we, through our disobedience, have ruptured the relationship of love with God, which was a source of life to us, and now have become dead. And 
out of eternal love and care of God, he has become human, shared in our death, participated in it, and turned it into life for us. And we can participate in that, in believing in Jesus and participating in his life as it is in the church. Okay, that's a one version, a simple version of the gospel message. Now, the cornerstone of that gospel message is that we are dead. It's bad news. If I walk up to you and I tell you, I have good news for you. Say, what's the good news? Say, I have a cure for cancer. And you're like, oh, okay, great. That's great news, I suppose. Um, why is it great news for me? I'm like, oh, oh, they didn't tell you? You have cancer. <laughs> like the good news suddenly became really bad news, right? You know, And the fact that I happen to have the cure for your bad news doesn't make the bad news not bad news anymore. The difference between the gospel now and the gospel 2,000 years ago is that 2,000 years ago, for about 300 years before Christ, there was 300 years of Greek philosophy and education talking about how the human state is so depraved, how the human state is so fallen, is so broken, is, is so terrible, and that's why human beings do all kinds of terrible things to each other. So society in Jesus' time was completely convinced that our humanity is like self-destructing, and it was obvious to them. And it's just as obvious now if you watch the news for two and a half minutes. But, the, but that idea is no longer present. So the gospel message may be offensive to people, but we don't need to make it more offensive in how we present it. We don't need to make it more offensive by having bad breath. We don't need to have, make it more offensive by being loud and brash and obnoxious. We don't need to take something which is beautiful and make it offensive. And that is all about this play of culture. But to play with culture, we need to, we're going to need to understand culture a little, bit, a little bit better. Now here's something else, another principle which is deeply important. This is the verse from the King James, but I kind of prefer it in the paraphrase of the message. In the message, Romans 15, 1 and 2 says, Those of you who are strong and able in faith need to step in and lend a hand to those who falter, and not just do what is most convenient for us. Strength is for service, not status. Each one of us needs to look after the good of people around us, asking ourselves, how can I help? If we believe that the church has the truth which gives eternal life and peace, life in heaven and peace on earth. If we believe the angels that proclaim to the shepherds that glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. If we believe that the incarnation of Christ brought God and made him one with our humanity. If we believe all of these good things and we have this treasure Ought we not to look around us and figure out, how can I go out of myself and figure out a way to present this in a socially acceptable, emotionally intelligent, relationally sensitive way to the people who are around me? Let me share another little historical tidbit with you. Did you know that the gospel, all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were all written in Greek? Now, most of those gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and John, didn't know Greek. They didn't know Greek. They, they spoke Aramaic. 
If they knew Greek, they knew little bits and pieces of it. Luke was half Greek, he knew Greek. Why did they write the gospel in Greek? Well, maybe, maybe they were uh, writing it to, uh, maybe they were writing it to certain churches. Those churches spoke Aramaic as well. So the author speaks Aramaic, the, 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 the person you're sending the letter to speaks Aramaic, but you're going to write it in Greek. What is that all about? Why would they do that? When they wrote the Gospels, they were writing the Gospel message to these people and telling them, go and share it with your local society. So we've got our little Egyptian club here in Toronto, and we write a letter to an Egyptian club in London. And we tell them, share this message as it is with everybody in London. Right? What language would we write it in? English. Because the goal of the letter was for it to be shared. The, the, the people who are receiving the letter are not the audience only. They're also a messenger. You and I who have received the gospel are not the end destination. The gospel was sent to us to share it with others. The gospel writers knew that, so they wrote it contextually in a way that made sense for the people that were the end destination. Mark wrote his letter to the Romans. So he sent it to the church in Rome, which probably spoke Aramaic and prayed in Aramaic, but he wrote it in Greek because that was the, the language of knowledge of the time. And told them, share it with them, and you'll find it's, it's short, it's to the point, it's full of action, it reveals the power of God. It reveals Jesus as almighty, the almighty, powerful, more powerful than Caesar, God. Luke wrote his gospel to reveal the compassion of Christ. So he shows that Jesus is very human, very kind, very gentle. He has compassion on those who come to him. They took their listeners into consideration. So we're back to the question of what is your culture. But actually, this is not the question. The question is not what is your culture. The question is, what is the culture of those whom you wish to share the gospel with? What language do they speak? What food do they eat? That's what that little piece of paper that you received is all about. And we'll get to it in just a couple of more minutes. See, there's a big divide in culture. For example, Western culture is very different from Eastern culture. Western culture really kind of integrates things on a very cognitive level. Westerners like to read and listen and learn and think. Not to say that Easterners don't think, but Easterners, Easterners enjoy things, enjoy things by their senses. They like to smell and taste and touch, you know? And you can see this. I mean, just travel through Europe. Northern Europeans are very different from Southern Europeans. One Christmas, uh, my in-laws got us a, 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 a quick little trip to Paris. So we were in England again for Christmas and we um, went to Paris for a night or two um, and we came back on the Eurostar. So we're on the subway in Paris to get to the Eurostar to go back to London. 
And Mary and I are standing in the subway, and these two lovely Moroccan Frenchmen are standing like perpendicular to us. And they're having a conversation. And they're talking and they're shouting and they're spinning and like, you know, and it's all very close quarters and we're all kind of holding on the same bar, you know, so we're all, and the spit is going and it was just very lovely, right? And then uh, we hit the Eurostar, we make it to London, we get on, we get on the underground in London, everybody is sitting in their chair, reading a book, dead silent. Libraries in North America are not as quiet as the underground, the, the subway system in London. The, the cultural contrast was drastic, you know? It's different. It's just different. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different, right? And we live in a very post-Christian culture. I've been there. I've done that. I've got the t-shirt. Right? I've already heard, I already know, I already know what God has said. I already know what the Bible says. The amount of Bible illiteracy and misinformation is enormous. I, you know, I love taking public transportation in Toronto because I almost always get into a conversation with somebody who will start their start the conversation by saying, Oh, I don't believe in da-da-da-da anymore. And I'll ask them, Oh, that's very interesting. Tell me more about that. And then they'll tell me, oh, I can't possibly believe in a God who's so vindictive and he does this and does that. And most of the time my answer back is, that's very interesting. I don't believe in that either. And they look at me and they're like, what? But you're a priest. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't know where you got that. But isn't that what Christians believe? I'm like, it certainly isn't what I believe, you know? And then we get into a great conversation where they, you know, in listening to them, they suddenly want to know, well, what do, what do I believe? But let's just look at a few a few surveys of our society to have a better idea of what is the culture that we are bathing in. So, if you, if you ask a bunch of people, a couple of thousand people, what does the Bible, uh, what, which of the following describes the Bible best? 52% of people say it's good morals, 38% of people say it's historically accurate, 37% people will say it's helpful today, and so on, right? 7% of people will say it's harmful. 8% of people will say it's bigoted. 14% of people will say it's outdated. These are American statistics. I have some Canadian statistics for you as well. But naturally, Canadian culture is different from American culture. Among Americans, church attendance is considered. 88% would say acceptable. 65% would say admirable. 61% would say common. 27%, that's a quarter of people in the U.S. thinking that going to church is outdated. <coughs> Interesting. Some Canadian numbers, because things are different in Canada, probably worse. Is religion positive or negative? Angus Reid asks 2,000 people, and they answer, if they were non-believers, 69% of them thought it was negative. If they... If they were spiritually uncertain, 43% of them thought it was, it was negative. If they were privately faithful, 30% of them thought it was positive. So get this, they believe in God and they have their own kind of way of relating to him, but they only do that in private and they don't do it in public. Two-thirds of those people <laughs> aren't sure that they're doing something positive.
They're talking about 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 religion about religion as a whole. But I'm not I'm not saying whether this is good or bad. I'm just saying I'm just if we're trying to answer what does Canadian culture look like today, I'm just trying to answer that question. That guy sitting on the streetcar who starts telling me how can you believe in? What does he think? What does he believe? What does he what does he eat? What does he drink? What does he hold valuable? What arts does he appreciate? And what arts does he find distasteful? And so on, right? I've got more numbers for you, but this one I really want to share with you. Um, this was the, the 2017 American Family Survey. 33% were Protestant, 21% identify, self-identified as Roman Catholic, 34% identified as none. None is not atheist. None is not agnostic. None is, I don't know. There's actually this great book by James Emery White called The Rise of the Nuns. And this, this new phenomenon of what is your religion? What do you believe? I don't know. Are you atheist? No, I mean, no, I don't know. Are you agnostic? Like, you don't know and you don't care? Um, no, I mean, it's probably something I should look into at some point. So what are you? I, I don't know. None. None of the above. I think that the people who are going to have the greatest impact for the kingdom of God in our generation are going to be the people who figure out how to reach the nuns. Not nuns in a monastery. The nuns, the none of the above. If you want my opinion, the money is here. The money isn't in, in uh, uh, you know, having a, a great apology towards atheism. I think it's important. I, I think it's important. I think apologetics is very important. But if my hunch is that this, this is where it's at. This is where it's at. Some emotional intelligence with some relational sensitivity and intercultural understanding, right? So you received a little card with this culture wheel on it, just a bunch of different areas. The first question on that little card that you received is write the name of a person that you wish to introduce to Christ. Don't do this exercise theoretically. I want you to do this exercise personally. That the, there's, um, y'all receive a little card, okay, that looks something like this. It has this wheel on it. But the first thing that's written as, at the top says, who would you like to introduce to Christ or the church? And then there's a blank there. I want you to write a person's name. This isn't theoretical. Don't make this theoretical. Make it personal. And then I want you to ask the question, what is that person's culture? Not in theoretical terms. What stories and knowledge do they enjoy? What language do they speak? What traditions and rituals do they hold dear? What techniques and skills are important to them? What tools and objects do they use and hold, hold dear and are valuable to them? What arts do they enjoy and find tasteful? What food and drink do they like? What values are important to them? What community would be important to them? And if you don't know the answers to these questions, go and ask that person. 
asking that person about all of this is showing interest in that person. Showing interest in that person is going to win you a lot of points with them before you even begin to share the gospel. And will prepare you to share the gospel in a culturally sensitive, relationally intelligent, emotionally appropriate way. Because their way is maybe a little bit different from yours. Let's wrap it up. We said like several weeks ago, we are committed to unity. We're going to do this, but we're going to do this together. The second thing that we said today is that we're committed to the person who has not yet joined the body of Christ. We're not going to do things in this church. Now, mark my words. I'm very serious about this. And you all might get up and leave and never come back again. And I'm so sorry to say I would be okay with it. We're not going to do things in this church in a way which is convenient to you. We're going to do it in a way which is convenient to the person who hasn't decided to cross the threshold yet. Because that is the gospel. That's the gospel. This isn't an elite social club. This is a gospel message spreading machine. That's what it is. Now, the more your culture is similar to the culture out there, the more you'll probably, there will be a lot of overlap. But the goal, the target audience is the person out there, not the person who's already here. Because service is not for status, but to reach out to those who don't have what you have already. The last thing is we're committed to not putting obstacles in the ways of those who are coming to faith. These are things that we hold really dear here. And if you hold these things dear in your workplace, on your hockey team, with your roommate, in any social circumstance, I bet you they will carry you and me very far ahead because Jesus' advice and the gospel's advice is good news for us, not just in the church, not just for evangelism, but for our everyday life.